You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 33. Today we're asking the question, can institutional logics help us move beyond safety culture? Let's get started. My name's David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray, and this week we're going to jump straight into our discussion again. So, Drew, what's today's question? Well, David, I'm glad we're jumping straight into the discussion, because I think we're going to spend longer explaining the question than we are talking about the paper we have for today. Uh, So, shout out to Kevin Jones and his Safety at Work blog, who drew our attention to the particular paper that we are going to talk about. I think it drew your attention, David, because it has... A very similar title to one that you and I have had half written for two years now. Yeah, about that, Drew. It was it was originally going to be a fifth chapter in my PhD, but we realised that we probably only needed four to get to get it across the line. So it's been sitting there, maybe three quarters done for a few years. So listeners might remember from some of our previous episodes that there's a body of literature that is tangential to safety called institutional work, and David and I are both fans of using this. We, In fact, we used it as our model for safety work versus the safety of work, which gave the title for this podcast. The central idea of the institutional work theory is that it doesn't make sense to think of organisations just as things that emerge from the individual behaviour of all the people inside the organisation. But it also doesn't make sense to think of organisations as these big controlling things and we're just stuck inside them. Instead, we need to realise that a lot of the work that we do as workers is about building, maintaining, changing, or tearing down the institutions that we work inside of. And so even though the most interesting parts are obviously when you build or tear down or change, most work that we do is really just maintaining an institution that we're part of working within. So that's roughly what institutional work theory is about. There's a related discipline in organisational studies called institutional logics. Institutional logics and institutional work are sometimes parallel and sometimes competing ways of looking at the world. If you compare them to other theories, they seem very, very similar. If you compare them to each other, they're quite different and the scholars within each one have lots of arguments. So the key difference is, whereas institutional work pays attention to small dynamic details of organisations, institutional logic tries to pay more attention to the broad fixed ideas and structures that guide and constrain the work. So David, we've both read a fair bit about institutional theory, and you used it in your paper. Did you ever sort of make an explicit choice between whether you're going to use institutional work or institutional logic as the main theory? Yeah, I think Drew, my decision sort of evolved because I was really fascinated by the practice of safety professionals. So the work and the tasks and the activities that safety professionals were performing and how that was driven by their organisation and how much of that was driven by themselves. So it really lent itself to institutional work type of theory. But then once I got the data, I started really being curious about what was driving the thought processes of safety people in their organisation. And that's where I started reading a lot of the institutional logics theory. The downside was that I already had my data collected and to do the institutional logics theory justice, I would have had to go and collect a whole lot of data from a whole lot of people also in the organisation, not just the safety professionals, to understand 
sort of the logics and the logic multiplicity and all these other terms that we'll talk about shortly would have meant me going back out into the field and getting information from managers and workers and, and other professionals uh, in the organisation to deal with institutional logic more fulsomely. That does certainly seem to be one of the distinctions between the two approaches to institutions. Is institutional logic people tend to look at management structures and lots of management documents in order to get their understanding of the institution, whereas institutional work theorists tend to focus on frontline people and how they make sense of and operate within the institution. Yes, yeah, so Drew, both I suppose both flavours or both institutional theories provide us with frameworks to understand how people think and how they make decisions and how they behave in institutional and their organisational settings. So right now, I think, Drew, some of our listeners are going to be thinking, well, isn't that just culture? Isn't that just organisational culture? Isn't that just safety culture, how people think and feel and behave within the organisation? And I suppose my short answer to that is, well, yes and no. There's papers in the literature which talk about how institutional logics and organisational culture are very similar concepts, and there's papers within the literature that talk about them as very uh, different ways of looking at the world. And I think safety culture is a particularly confusing space. So, Drew, I'm going to make a few comments about safety culture now, and then I'm really interested uh, to hear your perspective on it. I think the problem isn't necessarily so much with the theory of culture, because cultural theory has been around for nearly 100 years and it's been used to look at different civilizations and, and different cultures all around the world. One of the challenges is when we think about culture as a, this normative thing where there's certain categories of cultures and certain ideal cultures. And I think the difference between the way that we think about safety culture in our organizations and institutional logics is that when we take an institutional logics perspective, we're trying to be very descriptive. We're starting with a blank piece of paper and we're just saying, how do people think? We're not giving them we're not sort of trying to put them into a curve or try to put them into a ladder or try to put them inside some other box. So I think that's that's the first thing. And I think the other thing is that organizations are quite artificial. Drew, like you've been in your family all your life or you might have you might be born into a particular uh, ethnic background, but you also might change organizations every six months. So how much do you really how much does that organization actually become part of you at a deep cultural sense? And this is where I get a little bit um, where I struggle with the approaches to safety culture in a lot of organizations where we're actually trying to think that we're changing the values of an individual as opposed to thinking that organizational behavior is just more of a rational choice. So I think there's some there's some challenges with cultural theory. There's there's some real challenges with the way that we've applied organizational culture and safety culture in our organizations. And I think the institutional logic just gives us a whole fresh start with how to think about what's driving people's actions. David, I think you're absolutely right that safety culture has a lot of baggage that doesn't even necessarily come with the theory. It just comes with the way people have used the theory for so long that we do need even something that might technically be correctly called culture. We just need a fresh way of looking at it to get rid of some of that baggage. Um, and, and particularly the both the value judgments and the beliefs about how changeable and manageable it is. Uh, we definitely need to sort of set aside. Uh, I'd like to throw in, though, this, this is a direct quote from Tamar Zilbar, who's one of the institutional theorists. And this is him explaining the difference between what is reality when you're looking at an organisation and what is the perspective you're using to look at reality. And he says, 
there are neither institutional logics out there in the world, which we're trying to capture and explain, nor is there any institutional work. Rather, these are analytical perspectives that allow scholars to perceive and discuss certain phenomena. And while at this, there are no institutions in reality. Institutions, institutionalization, institutional logics, institutional work, are but scholars' modest attempts to organize and interpret some complex, ambiguous, and devolving events, actions, meanings, and experiences. And I think you can easily just substitute in safety culture and safety climate and add them in as well as institutions and uh, institutional logics. Culture and climate aren't real-world things. They're perspectives that we bring to look at the real world. And that's why often some of these theories seem very similar, because they're trying to explain the same real-world things. It's not that we're thinking there are institutional logics and there are cultures, and what's the difference between them? They're both just different lenses we bring to look at organisations with. So you know, think of them as a pair of glasses that you put on to look at an organisation, not a property of the organisation itself. So I think, Drew, our listeners might 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 gather that we're we're not probably big fans of the way that organisations approach their safety culture work um, broadly as a broad generalisation. Are there other problems with safety culture that that you see that might provide another reason for us to move forward? So we talked a little bit about the problems for organisations trying to manage safety culture. I think it's also a problem for researchers. Safety culture isn't asking, it's not giving us interesting questions to ask. And David, I think you've experienced this too. If I pick up a paper and it's got safety culture in the title or in the abstract, my eyes start to glaze over because I already know most of what it's going to say. Um, Sadly, I already know most of the mistakes the authors are likely to make. I know what their conclusions are going to look like. There's very little chance of it offering something new. And if it is generally new, my immediate response is, why did you call this safety culture? (laughs) Because you're talking about something different. (laughs) Whereas every time I pick up a paper that's got institutional theory in, it's got something interesting and different to at least ask the question, even if it doesn't have a good answer to it yet. Yeah, thanks, Drew. So just a shout out to researchers is find out what editorial boards Drew's sitting on before you uh, submit your paper (laughs) with culture in the title. Um, But look, early, early in this paper, authors say something that I totally agree with. They say that in a lot of our safety theories that accidents are attributed to some sort of irrational or out of ordinary behavior of individuals. And we find ourselves in hindsight asking the question is, why did the person do that? Why did the engineer design the system like that? Why did the operator behave like that? And the authors say uh, that calling a behavior irrational is basically just an admission that you don't understand the context in which the behavior occurred or that you don't have concepts available to explain to explain it. And I think that's where, where, where culture has really struggled with just not providing us with a framework to understand understand why things work the way that they do inside organizations. So Drew, I want to start so we're going to we're going to take some time to explain institutional logics. Hopefully, not too much because it is a big big body of work, but it's important to the study that we're going to talk about. And the way I conceptualise institutional logics, Drew, is to start with what I think is one of the most important concepts in safety, which is local rationality, which is what we all know is why did something make sense for someone to do something the way that they did it, or act in a certain way, or make a certain decisions. And this definition of local rationality goes something like that behaviours and decisions at a given moment are based on the knowledge, perspective and understanding people have of the situation at that time. And that situation is the work in front of them, as well as the organisation that they're sitting within. 
So I think, Drew, before we go into the, the broader definition, you know, we might simplistically think of institutional logics as just some kind of shared local rationality. How does that sort of idea sit with you? Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense because if you think of local rationality as the behaviour at a given moment, then you've got to understand what is the broader picture that gave rise to that knowledge and perspective at that moment. It didn't just come out of nowhere. It came from patterns of thinking and patterns of behaviour and patterns of making sense that led people to make sense in this particular time, in this particular way. Otherwise, if you just think of it as a spontaneous sense-making, then you lose all opportunity to predict or influence it. Yeah, I like that. I like that, Drew, because that's what we're really for in you know proactive safety. We're really about understanding these patterns as best we can in a complex socio-technical system, but understanding these patterns as best we can so that we can influence and, and predict uh, what might happen next. So the more formal definition of institutional logics is the socially constructed historical patterns of material practices, assumptions, values, beliefs, and rules by which individuals produce and reproduce their material subsistence, organise time and space, and provide meaning to their social reality. So, Drew, there's there's a lot of words in there. I'm not sure I even got them all outright, but but basically, it's 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 a combination of the individual the individual's experience and the situation and what they the sense that they make out of the situation that they that they exist within. And that produce and reproduce is very much the type of language that sociology scholars like to use to sound more academic. But in this particular case, it it is really important because it gives you this sense that this isn't just something that you do once. This is a pattern that you repeat over and over. And the one that particularly springs to mind is uh, Carl Vake's look at the Mangulch disaster. And one of the things that he uses in talking about that accident that no one else does is he says, look, you can't ignore the fact that this is just after a world war. And these are all guys who, young men who've come out of the military, and this is the way that they're trained to think. And it's that produce and reproduce. You can't ignore how people have been trained to think. And you can't ignore how their organisation trains them to think by the way the organisation routinely thinks about things. And I think, Drew, that's a good stepping point to be really practical here for our listeners. So when we say produce and reproduce, we mean my behaviour is going to be influ- in an organisation is going to be influenced by how I think the organisation wants me to behave. And then when I behave like that, I'm going to see how the organisation responds to that behaviour. And that's going to either adjust or reinforce the way I did behave or adjust what I did. But then my behaviour is also going to influence the way others perceive the world as well. So I'm kind of, you know, like you said, Drew, about social theory, structuration talks about that structures shape behavior and behaviors shape structure. We might just stop there before we start a whole new podcast. But one of the things about logics is that life's never simple in organizations, Drew, and there's lots of different logics and, and I suppose, influences of, of decision-making behavior. Some things that, that line up nicely, but lots of things that compete and contradict uh, each other in the organization. We've talked about production versus safety and things like that. So the paper introduces this idea, which they don't really use in the ana- analysis too much, but they talk about this idea of the multiplicity of logics. And this is that basically different people or different stakeholders in an organization rarely have the same sets of logic or rarely consider the same behaviors as rational. And we would have heard of this, Drew, in safety a lot, which is something that happens at an operational level in the business. And then when it gets played up to senior management, senior management are a gasp, a gasp that people could behave like that within their organization. 
So behaviors are seen very differently in, in very different parts of the organization, which lets us think that logics can also be very different for different groups in the organization. And I think this is an important benefit of institutional logics approach as opposed to a cultural approach, which says that the organization has a culture like this and doesn't really distinguish too much between different different groups of people. So we've been hawking around for a fair bit. It's probably time to get to the core question for today. The paper is basically just trying to take this institutional logics idea and apply it to some data that the authors have collected and to see whether it helps make sense of it. And that's really the question that we wanted to ask as well, which is, can an institutional logics approach help us to understand things that might be invisible or unclear to us when we use ideas like safety culture instead? Do you want to introduce the paper, David? Yeah, great, Drew. So the the paper for today is titled, How Logical is Safety? An Institutional Logics Perspective on Safety at Work. Now, I love the title, Drew, and um, you're usually the best at coming up with uh, new titles, but this is a good one. Unfortunately, I'm not sure when we get to the end of the researchers have really answered that, that question of how logical is safety, but it's a great title nonetheless. The authors are Peter Cornelson, Mark Van Vuren, and Joris Van Hoof. They're all from the same department in the University of Twenty in, in the Netherlands. Drew, you did a bit of digging into the authors? Yes. So uh, this is the PhD work, as far as we can tell, of the first author. Um, the other two authors are both professors in the Department of Communications. So with the exception of the first author, who's clearly got an occupational health and safety interest, these are not safety scholars. Their emphasis is on communication and organisations. Uh, but I don't think that's particularly relevant when it comes to credibility for this particular paper. What they're doing is taking some well-collected frontline data and then they're appropriately applying institutional theory to try to make some new sense out of that data. The paper's published, by the way, in a journal that I'd never heard of before. David had encountered a couple of papers from it. Uh, the journal's just called Work, the one word. It's a respectable journal. It's published out of the Netherlands. It's small, low volume of papers going through it. But some of them are sort of like tiny gems. They're really quite interesting. Uh, it was published in... Uh, Published in June 2020, I, it's just come out. Yeah, so Drew, um, look, basically the data from this, from what I can tell, the, the, the authors say in the paper that the data was reanalyzed from a larger study, which was kind of what we were doing with with um, the draft paper that we've kind of got sitting there on 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 this topic. But it um, it looks like that during the, the first author's PhD studies, they collected a whole lot of interview data. And then as part of that, they decided that they could use that data to try to understand the institutional logic. So... The interviews were of 22 supervisors, all within a single organization in the railway railway construction and maintenance uh, industry. So it looked like they were a service provider to the, the Dutch railway, something like that from reading between the lines. All 22 participants were male, all were at least 40 years old, and their time in the company had ranged from three to 37 years. So it's one of those things when you go into, this, into a single organization, look at a specific role, you tend to get a fairly homogenous sample drew and the authors recognize this in their lim- in in the limitations of the paper but what they did is or what the interviews contain they were semi-structured interviews and we've talked a bit about that bit about that before in fact in episode 30 when we talked about our own research into professional identity of safety professionals we talked about that and what they had was a series of questions which was like can you tell me about the day-to-day activities of your work and how many people do you supervise what role does safety play in your work 
Do you ever experience tensions between safety and other organizational demands? Does it ever happen that other demands get prioritized over safety? And it doesn't look like too many more questions other than that. And they just had a really open ranging conversation that lasted between sort of three quarters of an hour and one and a half hours from these 22 interviews. So that's a pretty big data set, Drew, that 22 hours of, of interview data is a, is a big, big set of data. It, it, it's certainly as much as you would expect for a study of this type. And the fact that it's homogenous doesn't have to be, I mean, it, it's a limitation in one sense, but it's also, it means that you're getting away from characteristics that might be defined by the individual and any patterns that you start to see, you can start saying, okay, well, these patterns are clearly from the organization that they're all part of and the work that they're doing all together. So yeah, you've got to make a trade-off. Either you get a bunch of totally different people, in which case you see very little pattern, or you get a bunch of people who are much the same and you start to see the pattern emerging. And that's exactly what they were doing in the analysis, is they were trying to match patterns of institutional logics that they took out of some existing theory. And they tried to look at how the participants were explaining or justifying their own behavior to see if these explanations matched with the logics. We won't go through all seven of the logics because they really only found three of the seven. And maybe we'll talk about those as they came out of the data. Yeah, Drew, I think directly relevant to safety, they talked about market logics. And this is the broader logic of the industry and the the environment that the organization sits within. So it relates to contractors and clients and, and industry and so on. So that's what they call market logic. Then they have this professional logic. So as a, as a group of supervisors, so you need to think of profession as the, um, the, the occupation or the, or the profession and the logic that's held by that profession or occupation. And then the, uh, the corporation um, or the company level logics, which are the ones that I suppose are uh, more consistent across the organization and more driven from senior management in the organization. So this market profession corporation type of uh, sets of logics. So they, they had lots of data. Well, they had a fair amount of data in relation to these three broad categories of logics. And we might go into each of these three, Drew, and then we can talk a little bit about what it might mean. So when they talked about the logic of the market, this broader context for the company and for safety within the company, this is where it becomes important to go back to noting that institutional logics perspective is a very descriptive perspective. So there's no right and wrong. There's no categories. It's just saying, what are the logics in the market? And it's sort of like starting with a blank piece of paper. So for this company, within this context, they were, like I said, an organization contracting to a state rail authority. That state rail authority had a cultural certification in, in place, which meant that preference was giving, given to com contracting companies that were, I suppose, certified against this cultural system and they got uh, preferential treatment in bids. And this led workers to have this, this motivation to work safely, to keep their job, because if they work safely, then they could maintain this certification, which means that their company would win work and they would keep their job. At the company level, it led to competitive tenders reducing by 40% because the people who weren't certified were discounting their bids to compensate for the fact that they weren't getting the preferential treatment, which led the whole market to reduce basically their, their bids overall. And this led to the contractors winning work at a reduced amount, which led to a greater tension between cost and safety because the company was then having to push work out for a much cheaper price. So in that narrative and discourse, Drew, about the market, you can see how just saying and see how I suppose logics are quite 
complex within organizations. That's just the market logic and, and how it was driving the behavior of managers and supervisors and, and workers. And we see how we never get that sort of nuance out of our traditional kind of responses to culture surveys and things like that. Yeah, I think maybe there's a couple of different ways we can look at this. One way is to sort of oversimplify it a bit and just say, oh, they are using market logic, in which case you're sort of putting it in a bucket and saying, okay, the explanations they're using are to do with uh, the competitive relationship, they're to do with these trade-offs between cost and safety, they're justifying decisions based on cost, therefore market logic. The other is to say, well, okay, it's, it's not just a bucket, it's going to be different for each organisation. So for this particular organisation, you've got to spell out all of those things to understand what market logic is. And if someone is having a conversation about safety in this organization and they're drawing on the market logic, they're going to be drawing on all of these as background factors, as arguments that they've had before, as conversations that they've had before, as reasons they've made previous decisions. All of that is your background context when they have a conversation about, will it be cheaper to do it this way or that way? I agree, Drew. And, and, and knowing that nuance means, like you said, patterns and, and predictions earlier in just telling people to spend more on safety or just telling people to, to, um, to behave in a different way without understanding and addressing the underlying logic is something that uh, doesn't necessarily help you uh, make change in your organization or, or support people better in your organization. And then we go, so the logic of the profession, Drew, so this is the subgroups of roles in an organization. And, and this is not that dissimilar to um, episode 30 when we talked about the professional identity of safety professionals. You, we could draw a bow to say that, you know, within that data was a lot of insight into the logics that were held by the safety profession in, in that organization, in that study. But inherent to supervisors in, in this study, they use their professional expertise to prioritize safety over conflicting organizational demands. They're not. They're relying on themselves to make those decisions, and they actually drew. They were quite clear and open that they prioritised work over following standard working procedures. They took their value, and they also built their reputation on getting the work done. They didn't get. They didn't build their reputation, you know, or their value in the organisation as following standard working procedures. It was about getting stuff done, which is why they relied on their own prof um, professional expertise to to balance all of the different organisational demands. And then they basically just said that it was up to them and their workers to make skilled and independent judgments about what is safety and what is not. So this was really clear that the logic they were applying was, was not one of compliance or following standard working procedures. It was about expertise and decision-making. And this is where we start to see the logic of the profession, like workers and supervisors, running counter to what we'll talk about next, which is the logic of the corporation. Yeah, I, I think we need to read a little bit between the lines to fully know what people mean by uh, some of the things they're saying here. But m my interpretation is that we're getting statements like people deciding that particular rules aren't really safety rules. And the, the interesting thing is that that's an acceptable thing to say, to say that, you know, I'm experienced, I understand the work, I am able to say that this rule is not actually there for the sake of safety so I don't have to follow it. Whereas this rule actually is important, so I do have to follow it. And that's an acceptable ongoing conversation in the organization about what rules do and do, don't count. Yeah, you're right, Drew. I was going to say this a little bit later, but it, it makes sense to talk about it now. There was a really good quote towards the end that I, that I liked and the authors then reinterpreted it, but it, it basically talked about this interface between the profession logic and the, and the corporation logic, which I know we haven't spoken about yet. But it says basically that the company expects 
supervisors to get the work done. And professionals know that getting the work done relies on them basically making a translation from the general rules of the organization into a, into an approach that fits with the specific situation. And so in doing so, they're always likely to deviate from or violate these corporate requirements. And so therefore, they'll, they'll violate some of the corporation logics. What the supervisors kind of say is that it's, it's accepted by the organization that this occurs. And it's, it's even expected by managers that they'll make this happen as long as things go well. But when things go wrong, the managers then defer to this corporation logic to protect themselves and talk about the rules that should have been followed. So this is where we start within the institutional logic theories to get into a deeper level of understanding of the way that the organization functions. It's probably a bit long for this podcast, Drew, but you can see how these conflicting logics and then how it sort of ties back down into trade-offs and decisions and then based on the outcomes, how it reverts back to different types of logics is you know, quite fascinating, but also quite complex. This is something that I would love to understand and investigate further because it's beyond what's in this particular paper. But it's almost like there's one logic that is acceptable for making decisions and there's a totally separate logic that it's acceptable for writing down. And so, you know, the way you can justify a decision in a conversation with a supervisor is you know, using things like market pressure and needing to get things done. And the supervisor can answer back with their professionalism and using their experience. That's an acceptable conversation. But, you know, the recorded version or the version in the disciplinary hearing is the logic about making safe choices and following the rules. And Yeah, very much so. Drew, so that logic of the corporation. So basically, they um, they were talking in in this paper, or, or what came out of the quotes in this paper is that you know managers take up their responsibility to help their employees make safe cho- safe choices, um, or supervisors. Sorry. So in this case, there was quotes about a supervisor, you know, calling out senior managers and saying, "My workers aren't going to work because we don't have the resources we need to work safely." And so, you know, there was a really strong logic in, in the organization about supervisors taking up their responsibility to, to support their workers. And in this case, also, there was a strong logic at play where employees didn't have to deal with higher managers. And the feeling was that if employees couldn't get supported by their supervisor and then they had to go to a higher level of management, they may be more willing to sacrifice safety because of the negative consequences of cost and production by going to a high level of, of manager. Um, however, Managers also used their hierarchical power to request actions from supervisors that conflicted with safety that was beneficial for market positioning. So I need you as a supervisor to get this done cheaper or I need you to get it done faster um, for the client. When you looked at, I suppose, these the intersection of these logics of the corporation, which is, you know, make money, follow rules, defer to hierarchy, and the logics of the profession, which is rely on ourselves and um and deviate when we need to to get work done. You can see how, Drew, that the, the tensions and, and trade-offs can exist and, and without actually taking the effort to understand how these logics are at play in your organisation, you can understand why you couldn't make progress on on improving the functioning. I'm just imagining, for example, taking the logic of the market with the broad history of the organisation and arguments that don't just happen in a single meeting, but arguments that have taken place over a couple of years happening over and over again as this pressure increasingly mounts, as the competitors keep undercutting, as the market position gets more precarious. Just imagining someone walking into a meeting, you know, nice and fresh in their brand new high vis saying, you know, no amount spent on safety is too much. And just what a numpty they would look, just how out of touch with the rationale and reasoning that drive all of the real decision making. 
yeah, I think Drew, you could you could make some kind of argument that, um, or you could make an argument, try to make an argument. I'm not sure how you're going to feel about this, but like Diane Vaughan's ethnography into into NASA was really a study in institutional logics over eight or nine years. You know how how do people think in that organisation? How do they behave, and why does that make sense? Mm, and, and it's not something that you capture on a survey at a single point in time. It's not something you change with a cultural intervention program. And it would be it would be fascinating to look at, you know, for a case study, Drew, like you said, about the, the conversations in an organization over years and years, it would be fascinating to look at a institutional logics uh, case study of Boeing over the last five years or so and just how those decisions get made and, and the conversations that occurred and why they why things were done the way that they were. So Drew, we've now so I'm not sure how well, you know, the, the discussions landed in terms of presenting those findings, but you've got I suppose some insight into the way that the data showed the logics at play at a market level, the logics at play within the the supervisor profession and the logics of the company. And then the the authors talk, uh, I suppose, only superficially about the relationships between these logics. So how does the market logic of, uh, you know, relate with the professional logic? How does the professional logic relate with the, the company logic? What it does show, it, I would have liked to have seen them spend pages talking about all of those trade-offs and relationship, but it probably came down to a limitation of data because, like I said earlier, with my research, they only had the supervisor's data. And to really do that justice, they would have had to go and speak with senior managers. They would have had to speak with workers. Um, they probably would have had to speak with clients and so on to really make sense of that. But it really does give a taste for how how potentially useful this this framework and theory of institutional logics could be for people to diagnose their own organization. So we've got a couple of conclusions, Drew, um, from the paper. So we might just go through, I think we've got, we got three or four and then we'll, um, we'll go into practical takeaways. So the first conclusion from the paper was that, you know, the institutional logic explains why people hold, hold the views that they do about safety. So it doesn't just tell you what these views are, but it sort of helps you say, why do people have the views that they do? And the authors conclude that they've shown how you can take data, even, you know, a relatively small data set of 22 interviews, and you can use that to it to uncover some normally easily overlooked differences between the different rationales that people employ to justify their own views about safety. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's a, certainly I think the authors were trying to make the point that institutional logic could be applied here. And I think they have definitely made that point. They've shown that they can produce statements about logic which are easily defendable from the data and which are useful statements to make about the organization. Yeah. And I think, Drew, they also show how how this competition between organizational goals plays out in the form of decision making. So they talk about different members of the organization in the study can hold competing expectations about, you know, goals and and clear guidelines about which goals should prevail. And that this organization they talk about encountered sort of extensive conflict because of, you know, the differences between the market and the profession and the corporation logics. It, it sort of went on to talk about how much conflict existed within that organization that could jeopardize, could jeopardize safety. So I suppose if we think about all of our own organizations where we've got, you know, teams that aren't working well together or, or parts of the organization or different levels that aren't, aren't aligned, then this study can sort of provide the the insight that you've probably got competing logics at place, uh, completing professional logics or different understandings of the corporation's logic or different interpretations of the corporation's logic that are creating the tension and the conflict between the groups in the organization. 
And the final conclusion, which is one that I disagree with myself, so it's a good transition into our own takeaways, is they say that if you understand the institutional logics, you can predict the amount of conflict and where it's coming from, which means that you can then do something about it to reduce the conflict, presumably by aligning the logics and making sure that people are operating with the same logics. Um, The reason I disagree is I'm not actually certain that that's a good idea. I think, Drew, in the background theory, it's it's funny why we think about alignment and harmony in organization is is the goal. It talked about having a, you know, a a dominant or a singular kind of logic uh, and core alignment behind it is actually going to is going to reduce an organization's um, ability to innovate. It's going to reduce the sustainability of the organization. It, it's going to cause a lot of problems in terms of the functioning of the business if there's a, if there's just a really simplistic and aligned and clear view. So is that what you're talking about, Drew? Yes, the idea that sometimes actually maybe you want other logics to be available and people who champion those logics to be able to come out of the woodwork and start to challenge when lines of thinking go in a particular way. So let's go to practical takeaways, Drew. And I'm hoping that that for listeners who think that we might have been a bit theoretical in this discussion or, you know, talking about institutional logics and and the application to safety seems a little bit far removed. Let's 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 try and help um, make things very practical. I think the the first practical takeaway for me is um is spending the time in your organization to know what's driving your safety related decisions. So yeah, I say here as a plea, please don't fall in the trap of thinking it's sort of hearts and minds. So how much do my people know about safety? How much do I think that they care about safety? Um, institutional logics will will show you that any behavior and any decision in your organization is a symptom of the way that the system is designed and functions. And I think a useful sort of 1B takeaway is those three logics that they drew out in this particular paper is think think about the logic of the market you're operating in. Think about the logics of the professions that you're operating with. And think about the logics of the company and the organization. Are sort of good categories to look in to think about those different histories and conversations and drivers. Yeah, I agree, Drew. I agree completely. Um, and so then I think as part of that, um, understanding the shared local rationality at all levels of the company. So why do decisions and behaviours make sense to workers? Why do they make sense to supervisors? Why do they make sense to manage- managers or executives? And don't judge them based on your viewpoint. And they're going to be different. I remember one project we did with an organisation, Drew, where we went to look at an incident that had occurred and we asked about five or six different crews about because the way that that work was being performed was really heavily criticised in the initial incident investigation, we went and asked a whole lot of different work groups, five or six of them, about does it surprise you the way that this work group was working? And all the other groups said, no, I fully understand why they made those decisions. That was really clear. The pressure they would have been under from this or that and the resources they had available, no, that's exactly the way we would have done it. And then we went to the supervisors and said, you know, does this surprise you? And most of them said, oh, a little bit, but I can kind of see why they might have felt the need to do, you know, to make that decision like that. And then we went up to managers and they said, yeah, absolutely surprised me. They shouldn't have done it like that, but I can understand that, you know, they might have made a mistake or something, but surely no one else would do it like that. And then you get to senior executives and they fall off the chair, which is like, how could anyone possibly think that that's the right kind of way to behave? And what we found is like there was almost this linear thing that like the the further you got away from the front line of the organization, the more, you know, the more aghast people people uh, responded to the behavior itself. But I think what I wanted to use as that practical takeaway is um, 
different things are going to make sense to different people in the organization. The best thing a safety person can do is not judge any of that. And the same way down, you know, why the CEO is behaving the way that he or she is, you have to ask, you have to find out, you can't just judge it. And you'll know if you've got it right, if you have an explanation that makes them sound like the good guy. You, you haven't successfully explained local rationality if you've explained things in terms of, or, or they just slipped up or they made a bad call. It's got to be an explanation that actually, you know, would genuinely defend the person shows that you've really understood what's going on. Yeah, look, there's a few Decker quotes through this paper, Drew, and one of them, one of the actual quotes in the paper is that people don't turn up to do a bad job. People don't come to work to do a bad job. And, um, you know, I think that's that's sort of a reflection of what you're what you're saying there, which is if you can understand why a person did something and it wasn't because they were, tr- you know, trying to do a bad job or be a bad guy, then you've probably got a got an explanation. And if you can play that explanation back to the person and they can say, yeah, that that sound that's right, that's why I did that, then you're probably pretty close to the logic. And so the final practical takeaway that I wanted to throw in is that institutional logics gives us a good way to think about influencing organisations. There's two scales we can work on. One of them is we can actively try to change the logic. That is a really, really long-term endeavour. That requires gradually inserting new language, gradually introducing new ways of talking about things, new conversations to have about decisions plays out over three years, four years, five years of constantly talking about things in a particular way. The other thing we can do is we can work within the logic in order to make the case for what we want to happen. We can recognise that decisions are made with particular narratives, that certain explanations are justifiable. So we use that language. If the language is all about cost-benefit calculations and that's the logic people use to make decisions, then that's how we need to present safety. If the language is about professionalism and the right thing to do, then that's how we present safety. Yeah, and look, Drew, I think um, that, that was the when you know when I was doing my my research. It was the last time that oil price fell dramatically, and by seeing the logic, the rise in the efficiency and cost reduction logic in the organisation, and how that logic was dominating the the compliance and um, and sort of safety bureaucracy logic in the organization at a, at a at a corporation logic level that gave me the uh, opportunity to do a massive decluttering exercise that otherwise might have taken me two or three years to get across the line so very much is the case drew that if you understand the logics and and the way that the organization and different levels of the organization make decisions then you've got a better chance of actually making progress on the things that you want to make progress on so that's our takeaways uh David, what would you like to hear from our listeners? Well, Drew, you you threw this in the notes because I think you want some <laughs> feedback on the academic community, so I might let you ask ask this question. Okay, so, so, so my, my curiosity was just, we care a lot about this in safety research, is we care about the differences between safety culture and institutional work. Because uh, for us, the difference matters. It matters in how we ask our questions. It matters how we get our data, how we think about things. What I'm curious is, is this sort of thing useful for you? Is it just academics who care about it? Or is it useful for the way you see the world in doing your work to have tools available like institutional logics, institutional work, safety culture, safety climate? Is sort of understanding those distinctions helpful? I'm fascinated by by the responses, Drew, and um, I'm sure they will surprise us. Well, I'm I'm sure they'll surprise us. So the question for today was, Drew, um, can institutional logics help us move beyond safety culture? Do you want to have a go at the answer? I'd, li- I'd like to think that we can. The authors in this case claim that the new perspective can 
uh, uncover and explain dynamics that get overlooked by other methods of safety. And I think that's a fair claim that they've shown. It certainly can create new and interesting discussions to be had. And I think um, institutional logics actually moves us back closer, just thinking about it now, moves us back closer to the original cultural theory, which was very much blank page and, and descriptive. And I suppose it became bastardized in, in organizations and turned into safety culture. And I think institutional logics helps us appreciate the complexity of every individual organization and helps us come up with nuanced descriptions of what each organization is like. So I think it really does help us. And I think it eliminate some of the baggage of safety culture. So, so your answer is institutional logics can help us get back to what safety culture was intended to be? Well, I don't think back to safety culture, but back to culture. If we think about um, Mead and some of the original 1930s, 40s, 50s work in in some of the different civilizations around the world world, and trying to understand why their lives make sense or, or, or how they, what they think and believe and act in terms of um, culture and community, which is where the cultural theory came from. I haven't done it, but I think if we read some of the culture work before it actually became organizational culture, it would be very similar to the institutional logics work with elders and family and things like that. I think we'd find that it only became corrupted once organizations started playing with it. Hmm. Well, that's it for this week. We hope you found the episode thought-provoking and hopefully useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organization. As always, you can contact us on LinkedIn or on feedback at safetyofwork.com. We welcome comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes. 